1: Welcome to the Monsters, Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, joined by my co-host, Angelique. Say hello, Angelique. Hello. And Henry. Say hi, Henry. Hi. (laughs) This evening, we're joined by a very special guest, director, producer, puppeteer, and effects artist, Stephen Kyoto. Stephen, how the hell are you doing?
0: Oh, I'm fine, thank you. It's a pleasure to be talking to you guys today. I'm doing well, thanks.
1: Let's start at the beginning. That's the easiest place. Take us back in time. When you were a kid, what sort of films, fiction, music, and all that good stuff were you consuming to get those creative juices flowing?
0: Oh, that's a good question. I'll tell you, right from the very start, I was a monster fanatic. I love monster movies. The biggest inspiration for me personally was that uh, the original King Kong, the 1933 black and white version. When I first saw it, I was living in the Bronx, Bronx, New York. And uh, right down the block from my apartment, we had these elevated train tracks, the L tracks. And when I saw King Kong stomping through the New York City streets and tearing apart those trains, I thought it was real. It was like the most surreal experience. I had previously loved dinosaurs, so I loved Skull Island. But what made it real, in my mind, as a five-year-old... Was the fact that he was in New York? That was the impression it made on me. And in fact, I, I even asked my parents to take me to the Empire State Building so I could see the crack in the cement he made when he fell. I fixed it. It was on the west side, but uh, it's since been fixed. So you geek, there's no, no vacuum. For that. <laughs> yeah. But that was it. And then it was Ray Harryhausen movies and Willis mm-hmm. O'Brien, in Twenty Thousand Fathoms* and *Beast* uh, and the Giant Behemoth. And and then oh yeah, then it was Godzilla and Mothra and Rodan. You know, I I saw this with my older brother, Charlie, we used to go to these matinees, these little kids. And I noticed there was a distinct difference between the way King Kong moved in the beast from 20,000 Fathom and how Godzilla moved and how Rodan moved. I didn't know what it was at the time, but I eventually learned that it was stop motion as opposed to men in suits. And we preferred the stop motion characters because (laughs) they were more dynamic. And that's what kind of got my brother and I, Charlie, uh, interested in making films to kind of do stop motion to make our own monster movies. That's it in a nutshell, Not, nothing more nothing more sophisticated than that.
1: like, like I said at the <laughs> beginning, we're in South Carolina, well, in Angelique in Georgia, so I just never consider that aspect of the film. Living in the location where the film takes place, you know, living in South Carolina, you're like well, nothing happens here. there's no movies here.
0: Well, they are now. I <laughs> mean, watch out for zombies in in Atlanta.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, there there is The Walking Dead and all that good stuff. So you mentioned King Kong. have you seen the latest Kong versus Godzilla?
0: Oh, yes, yes, I have. I wonder what I would have thought if I was that same five year old, how it would have impressed me. Uh, Imagine seeing it on the big screen. I think it probably inspired a whole generation of new monster geeks. But one difference I would have to say, maybe it's a little bit of old school for me. It had great action, great effects, great scope, fantastic sound, but it didn't have a really strong character story. The characters weren't the same. And I wonder, and we'll see in the next maybe 10 to 15 years, how this film might've inspired people. But I know is, hokey and melodramatic king kong the original king kong might have been there was a character piece There was uh robert armstrong as carl denham a really dynamic character that i think really kind of pulled the picture into this a more more of a character piece where it was him and kong and all this kind of stuff so yeah i i think the original probably had more character to it and the the the, the, the latest one has less character more kick-ass effects and scope <laughs> but i think they both equally
1: so do you have a eureka moment that you can point to in your life where you decided to take the plunge and go for the film industry as a career
0: well it's interesting living on the east coast the film industry wasn't really uh didn't seem like an industry like an employment opportunity we didn't have grips and electricians and cinematographers living next door to us like we do here in la you know anybody you bump into is related to the industry here but we didn't have that in new york so our Filmmaking was really a form of play. When we were very young, we had army men and dinosaur plastic figures, and we used to play in the dirt and create stories and just kind of play imaginations of these things kind of battling each other. And after we saw Kong and Ray Harryhausen films and stuff, we learned about stop motion and we had a eight millimeter camera and started making our own movies in our basement. So really filmmaking for us was a form of play originally. It wasn't really an occupation we pursued. It was just something we wanted to do. My brother Charlie inevitably went to Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York and studied illustration. And I went to Rochester Institute of Technology to study animation and filmmaking. And my younger brother Edward, who followed us later on, went to Hofstra to learn filmmaking. We became educated in the field, but never really with an ever, ever having an understanding of it as a profession. How do you get into the movie business? Even in New York, they were always producing commercials, but motion pictures wasn't the big thing. And television was like video productions, not a lot of single camera TV shows. So we didn't know. And in our ignorance, we just kind of fell into it. Our art skills, me as a sculptor, as an animator, and Charlie as a designer and an illustrator, we just kind of backed our way into the industry without even really knowing it was an occupation. We just did it because we wanted to. Oh, I remember my father. My dad was a was a mailman. He worked in the postal uh post office and he s- urged us to take the service test and be a postal worker just as something to fall back on because for both my mom and dad the arts were not an industry that they were familiar with and were rather uncomfortable thinking we'd be able to make a living but they always supported us no matter what we wanted to do if we said no no we wanted to do this they gave us support and we eventually went to college it probably was a great expense to them and learned this art form that we didn't know how we were going to make money but they supported us and and it worked out okay. I think we, when I think back now recently, we made a movie, we made a TV show, wrote a book, and did a special. I mean, it's, it's been pretty pretty successful. All pretty much our stuff, you know, stuff that we've always wanted to make. We've had an opportunity, very unique opportunity to kind of tell our own stories the way we wanted.
1: That's more than a lot of folks can say, so kudos to you.
0: Well, yes, I could actually say that is There's a lot of people. There's a lot of talented people here in Los Angeles, and so many of them never get an opportunity to even get one chance at that and it's not because of lack of talent it's just that kind of synergy that opportunity of just Mm -hmm. being at the right place at the right time it's unfortunate and for the few people who have actually made a career out of it directors who make movie after movie after movie after movie if you look at the number of people that actually do that as a career it's very few very few people have that kind of opportunity and it's really wonderful if you can kind of scrape that out So how did you land your very first professional gig? It's interesting. It's really kind of convoluted. There's that, you know, saying it's it's who you know, you know, and it really is nepotism, who you know, or just who you get to know. And in that sense, you kind of make your own future. You make your own luck. There's a lot of luck involved. But if you work in the industry and meet people and do good work because work gets work, You start to create a network of people and contacts. And that's the beginning of the luck and the opportunities. So you do make it yourself. But there is a big, big pile of luck slapped onto that. So for me, wow, we made a stop motion feature probably the first clay animation stop motion feature down in Washington DC of all places it was based on the the Walt Kelly pogo comic strip which was in the papers back in the 60s and 70s and uh, this this producer got the rights and we did a clay animated feature based on Walt Kelly's pogo and then after that thing was completed my brother Charlie and I went to California because we wanted to make movies not do TV commercials and I mean New York was very familiar to us but they did commercials and I just being a storyteller at a young age, making our own little monster movies, that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to sell soap or tires or, <laughs> or shit like that. <laughs> I went to Hollywood. We didn't know anybody. They didn't give a shit who we were. So we made a feature <laughs> film on the East Coast, and they didn't know anybody that we were associated with. So it didn't count. It really didn't count. So all of the years of work that we had created there didn't really amount to anything. So we had to kind of start from scratch. We Started just working me as an animator and a sculptor and Charlie as a designer and illustrator. And our skills kind of set us up into special effects. So we started in the special effects industry. And I, not to bore you guys with a long conversation, but it's really kind of convoluted that we were You're not going to bore us. <laughs> we were in LA for like, for like six months unemployed, didn't get any work at all. And we contacted Disney and All these effects companies, David Allen, Jim Danford, all the guys doing stop motion. And they're all freelance independent little guys. So they they weren't hiring anybody, especially guys they didn't know. And the first call I got was from New York. Somebody had recommended me for a stop motion job with an an airbrush illustrator illustrator named uh, Robert Grossman. Maybe people in the 60s might remember him. Really brilliant, political. And he was doing an animation. He got my name, so I went to New York. My first job was in New York. So I stayed there for about two months or so and then came back to Los Angeles and tried to eke out a living. And then I got a call from these guys at Disney and Rick Heinrichs knew Bob Grossman in New York and he was looking for an animator for a short that they were doing, a short called Vincent. So Bob Grossman said, oh, Stephen Kyoto, I heard he's in LA now. So it was a, a New York contact that put me in touch with Rick Heinrichs and Tim Burton and it got me to work with them on Vincent the animated short that they did for Disney back in nineteen eighty
1: one. That's crazy. What what was Tim like back then when you first met him?
0: Oh he was a funny guy. Talk with his hands. He was like a, you'd think he was an Italian. He just very, very <laughs> expressive guy. A lot of <laughs> words. And very excitable young man. But he he was different and but he had tons of ideas. Sketches were really kind of really they were different. They weren't Disney esque. They were very scratchy linear, but very expressive. And interestingly Every sketch had a story His sketches were a lot larger than just the illustration itself. They were character based and there was a long there was a big story behind them and uh, Rick was a, was his partner then and Rick ha- was really instrumental at bringing Tim's 2d drawings into 3d reality actually making them three dimensional and their camaraderie their language their artistic roots i think were this, were very very similar they were a really good team they were both the cal arts guys i didn't even know what cal mm. arts was in those days but it was funny he had an illustrated book very much like an edward gorey type tale about a young boy wanting to be like vincent price and it was these single panels and then he broke it out into storyboards and uh, we discussed how we would shoot it so i became the technical director and the animator on the project. And I got my director of photography, Victor Abdoloff, from the East Coast. He shot the Pogo film with me. I got him to come to the to the West Coast and we shot it. We produced it with uh, Rick and Tim. It was great.
1: Now, at this point, are you and your brothers, do you have your own company? Are you selling yourselves as a package deal?
0: Yes, yes, we were. It's interesting, the very, I guess, yeah, I don't know. I have to look at the chronology. The very first company we worked for <laughs> in Los Angeles was a place called the Magic Lantern, and my brother Charlie and I got a job there. Me, he was a designer, character designer, and I was an, a sculptor. And these guys had just completed the Jews in Space sequence for Mel Brooks' History of the World <laughs> Part One. So they were a uh, hot, hot. Well. <laughs> Star David spaceships were in their studio and they had motion control cameras moving on them. It was so cool. It was a great introduction. And our bosses were Tony Dublin, a guy I work with even still today. Tony Dublin, Bill Hedge, Bob Greenberg. And another guy. And they were the first guys to hire us. These East Coast guys. And the film we worked on was a a compilation film called Flicks. And there was a film within the film called Philip Alien. It was a Humphrey Bogart type alien who was going to solve a crime. And Charlie designed the, the bug characters and I sculpted it and we'd cast these prosthetics and these animatronic skins for guys to make into animatronic costumes so I don't think anybody's ever seen the film <laughs> but that that was it that was the first legit job and it was funny this is where being at the right place at the right time I think there was another project they were working on and an art director saw my sculpting so Charlie's designs and he asked us if we could do a crypt of heads for a film called the sword and the sorcerer
1: I was going to ask you about that movie coming up next. I've been itching to ask you about that since we started talking. (laughs) I was going to ask you how you got involved with that.
0: That was our first Kyoto Brothers job. You know, it was Michael Erler. He was the art director of Sword and Saucer at the time. And we took the job and we actually rented space at Magic Lantern to build it. So we gave Magic Lantern some kind of a fee for renting their space. And we built this crypt of heads. I sculpted it with Mike Jones and, and a bunch of people and we built it. And, uh, we shot it at Bronson Caves, the very famous Bronson Caves, the Batman cave. It wow. challenged the world. Every sci-fi movie was shot at the Bronson Caves. And there was an Albert Pune film. That was the first motion picture that we worked on as Kyoto brothers.
1: So was the head crit the only thing you did for the film?
0: Yeah. That was it.
1: I mean, that's a cool thing. I was asking, you know,
0: (laughs) that was great. Oh, and it was so funny that we did. We sculpted all these heads and we were inside the crypt puppeteering. We were blowing tubes to make the veins pulse and we were puppeteering with both hands and even our feet to manipulate different heads that were soft (laughs) from the inside. There's like two or three people inside keeping that thing alive. Wow, that was our first our first movie, yeah. That's a great that was, debut. And it was good. In fact, we just did some interviews for that. they were interviewing Albert and some of the people involved with that production.
1: Oh, was there a reunion recently or was it the release date or perhaps? No,
0: I, I don't know. Somebody's
1: doing something
0: uh, a book or, oh, gotcha. or or something about the film. I have to
2: ask because quite possibly is one of my favorite creature features of the 80s. And arguably, it deserves its place to being before Gremlins. Can you talk about your work on Critters?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah actually, we just came back from a great convention in Pennsylvania, the Mahoning Drive-In in Lehighton, Pennsylvania, the largest existing drive-in in the United States right now. They did a Big Critter Fest, Critters 1 and 2, and it was a big, big, it was great, fantastic group of people. (laughs) I never realized how popular the film is. It's really, it's found its place in the hearts of so many fans. That was great, Uh, I'll tell you. Now, that was a... a landmark for us that was the first time the Kyoto buzz had keyed a show and by keying that means that we actually did all the effects for the critters we did all the critter effects and i have to thank kevin yeager for that kevin had just completed um nightmare on elm street with new line cinema and uh, bob shea wanted him to do the the sequel to nightmare and he also wanted kevin to do critters and Kevin, I guess, felt he couldn't do both justice at the same time. So Kevin recommended Kyoto Brothers. So I'm always in debt to him for, for thanking him for uh, suggesting us. So we met Rupert Harvey and and Steve Herrick and Dominic Muir. Charlie did some designs and I did a maquette and uh, we nailed that job. We got it and it was great. Great. I and mean, who knew it would be Critters 2, Critters 3, and 4? <laughs> it was a lot now- of fun.
2: I always thought it was kind of a shame that film got that film actually I think uh, started was produced before Gremlin's and ended up on the shelf for a couple of years before getting released in which I think Gremlins got released at the time and Critters kind of got referred to as a gremlin's knockoff but the special effects and just the design in that movie was just fantastic I mean particularly both the critters themselves and the I always saw the space bounty hunters that kid probably it probably wasn't appropriate for us to watch. But uh, I always thought the bounty hunters, especially their heads were so amazing. So it's kind of, it's nice to finally know the puppeteer behind the creation of that.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're right. Well, from what I heard, Brian or Dominic, I, I forget which one he went by, Dominic Muir. He wrote the screenplay before Gremlins. He came to Hollywood to make movies and he knew the horror genre was the way to do it. So he, he wrote the screenplay, peddled it around, didn't do very much. Then Gremlins came out. And I guess that kind of, the success of Gremlins kind of gave people the confidence to produce something similar. So yeah, the movie came out after Gremlins, but the idea was kind of unique unto itself. So, I mean, it it was. And The Bounty Hunters was, I think, a brilliant idea. The fact that, I mean, the film starts with these critters as criminals who break out of prison mm-hmm. and then land on earth, I think is great. And the Bounty Hunters coming after them. So the, those two stories were really wonderful. And Steve McCarrick, I think did a really great job with I think the horror film aspect of it and the character arcs. I think the the Bounty Hunters were really great. And I think it was a, a, a good a good horror movie, a good monster movie. I, I really enjoyed that. And when I think, talk about the fans, I mean Critters 2 came out and the Garris, really great director, he's a good friend of mine. He had a different take. I think he like Joe Dante, he saw the humor in it and i think he kind of pumped up the humor created characters and where i think hmm, maybe critters one is a more legit horror film with comedic moments where i think critters two is more of a i won't call it a comedy but it is a a horror comedy Mm -hmm. it's got it's just it's a it's a hoot and that critter ball is just a brilliant (laughs) build to uh to a critter dilemma so I, I just, they're both my favorites.
1: Were you involved with that giant critter ball?
0: Oh yeah. We built that critter ball. And that was <laughs> a lot of interesting development. I mean, we built this like two geodesic domes, put together aluminum structure, and we covered it with fabric and a bunch of critter heads and, and actually had mechanics in them too. Some actually had their mouths move. And we did an inflatable one too. The, the effects coordinator's big idea was he would take a dune buggy and he would kind of play volley, like soccer with it and kind of hit it. And make it go and we were thinking we would just push it from behind on the off camera side to push it and they kind of worked for maybe I don't know maybe 75 percent of the shots but it didn't give them the coverage they wanted and it was Marty Breslin the effects coordinator who came up with the idea of putting it on a on a on a rig off of a camera car so they were able then to mount the camera on the camera car shoot over the over the ball while it was rolling and it got this really incredible coverage of the Critter bowl, which really, I think, brought it to the forefront and made it a really wonderful climax. Again, it takes a bunch of people. The Critter Babies was something new in Critters 2. That was a lot of fun, making little Critter Babies that Charlie designed. So, yeah, it was, you know, they're different films, but they're always fun. And what it comes down to is I had my hand in every one of those puppets. Every, pu- every critter you see, if it's one, it's me. If it's more than one, it's me and a bunch of other people. So that was i was working a lot digging holes in the ground so i could be (laughs) down at the ground level being in water with a bubbler in it to make it look like they were in hot oil while they were boiling in the in the burger joint and critters too
1: so i'm assuming you were in (laughs) three too with leo dicaprio
0: i yes yes that was that was funny that was an interesting one instead of going low tech we went high tech we built a telemetry suit so that uh, an operator with gloves could make the critter arms and hands move very high-tech but in the end the puppet wasn't flexible enough to do what we wanted and then we ended up just using puppets and a funny story about the the about technology for critters one we built a high-tech ball that would actually roll like they do now in that in the disney what's that little robot called in star wars oh wow uh, vb8 i think yeah, maybe, that, that, that little ball thing <laughs> We had that technology very primitive <laughs> on one and it worked really great remote control in the studio on a concrete floor. As soon as we went on location with a little bit of an incline with some gravel, the damn thing didn't work at all. It was a bust. <laughs> so we ended up doing low tech. We had these balls we made and we put a weight inside and we off centered it to the left or to the right. And we'd bowl and we'd practice. And if you put the weight on the top and give it a little bit of a spin, so the weight would be on the right, it would make a right-hand turn. It was great. So we got really good at making these balls turn left and right on cue. And all it was, was a dumb soft ball with fur. So it's really an interesting mix of high-tech and low-tech and and it works.
1: Just real quick on the critter ball again. How big was that in scale in person? I
0: think it was 10 foot diameter. Pretty big.
1: It's a big reveal.
0: What a great uh, great great reveal. I don't think anybody expected when that barn was on fire that that thing would come out. <laughs> that was great.
3: Welcome to the Night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. All with in depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts. So you worked on all four Critter films,
1: did the design or your approach to designing the Critters themselves without the special cases, such as the Critter Ball, did it change at all from the first to the fourth?
0: It I changed from the first to the second, mostly. I sculpted the Critters for the, for Critters 1 and I wanted to make them look as realistic as I could. So there was not, not a lot of character there. It was more like an animal. It was described in the script as a fur bowl with teeth and in the design, Charlie interpreted that as the Tasmanian devil, Looney Tunes character, where it's just really a body with a massive mouth. We made it very small. They wanted it to be really tiny and cute when you first saw them, but when they opened their mouth, they had teeth and made them lethal. But I think we made it a little too small. I'm puppeteering them. I started getting like, like nerve damage from just, it was just too small. And we used real moose pelt because they were described in the screenplay as having quill-like fur. So we looked around for We didn't want to use fun fur or anything. We found a moose pelt and moose pelts had this quill-like quality to it that was really extraordinary. So we made the We made them that way to make them look more realistic. It made it more difficult to move critters. Two, we decided to make them bigger. They were easier to move, more flexible. And we went to a company called National Hair Technology where they would actually weave you specialty furs. And we got a nice long pile of fur that we used for them. And I think Charlie gave them more character. They were more, I won't say cartoony, but they they were more character, more anthropomorphic, more evil looking than just a kind mm. of neutral animal, a mean animal that I had done. And I think we continue with that design for three and four as well. But that was the only difference. That that was uh, between one and, and the rest.
1: Now, I know there was like a recent reincarnation of Critters. Were you approached about that at all?
0: Yeah, we were approached. And we were really pleased that they would kind of think of us after all these years to do that. And we were talking to them. I mean, the guys, I forget the director's name, but I think they did um, a beavers, which for what it is, it's a hoot. And I think directed, I thought it was really nice production the way they they do a low budget monster movie. So we were really pleased with their take on it, but it ended up that the expense, they, they ended up shooting it in Canada. And we felt doing things in Los Angeles, then shipping things up to a crew up in Canada and all the extra expense that wouldn't be seen on the screen was really a waste of money for their budget. So we figured, you know what, let a new generation kind of reinterpret Critters and give it to some new guys. So that's what we 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 kind of bowed out and let them do it so our team in i think it was vancouver created the, the critters and puppeteered them and did all the effects up there which is you know well within their budget and i think it worked out pretty well for them
1: so stephen you directed several shorts prior to killer clowns but killer clowns was your first full length correct me if i'm wrong though so what made you take that leap
0: mm, well that's something my brothers and i always wanted to do make movies I and mean, when we came out to los angeles and initially got work with our art skills and we learned pretty quickly that we, we weren't satisfied with doing what we thought were good effects on sometimes questionable movies. Or even, I'll tell you, just quick aside, what really determined are a refocus on what we wanted to do in Los Angeles. We work with Piyun on Radioactive Dreams, a post-apocalyptic film about two guys who were in a bomb shelter and they survived the apocalypse to a, a crazy world. And we made this 15-foot giant rat, mutant rat, That burst out of the sewer and in the script, it took a woman in its mouth and started rattling her for the big climax of the film. And we made this 15-foot rat, pneumatically controlled, could put a woman in its mouth. I tested it. I was in its mouth, taking me all over the place. It was a beautiful piece of art, great construction. And we made a close-up head that was on a ramp that actually popped through the sewer. Well, the day we were going to shoot the big climax with the big rat that we spent all the money on as a showcase piece, they... Cut it out of the movie and they only shot it as a promotional event. They had the news down there, down at the warehouse where they were shooting it, but it was going to be cut out of the film. And at that point, my brothers and I said, look, we didn't come to Los Angeles to make great props and then have it cut out of the film. All that was not gonna be seen. So we said, why are we here? And then we started focusing on making films. And again, a quick, quick line. You just don't go out there and make a film. It was, again, through the industry. We did a promo for our company called Dino Alley, which was a punk rock dinosaur, stop motion. And he spray painted our name, our logo on a brick building. And that won a festival award. And then a producer saw that and licensed it and put it in a documentary that he was making about dinosaurs for kabc so he met this producer richard jones and he knew somebody at kabc who had money for specials and he said "Do you guys have any ideas for a a tv special and we said yeah yeah we do we came up with something called cousin kevin the story about a young boy who's so well read that when he starts spinning tail with his imagination, they actually become real, like Walter <laughs> Me, but they actually become physically real. So we made a, a half hour after school special that I directed, we wrote and I directed, that was aired. And then we worked on a fairy tale theater with Shelley Duval and her producer Fred, uh, Fred Fuchs. We did all these special props. Uh, Mike Erler, the guy that got us the sword and the sorcerer, he was a production designer on that, he knew us. So this is where you do good work, people get to know you, they get another job. So Mike Earler got his fairytale theater. Fred Fuchs knew some people at Transworld Entertainment. They were looking for low-budget features for the direct-to-video market in those days. Blockbuster was taking off. They needed content. We said, yeah, we have an idea called Killer Clowns. So we, we went in, pitched it, and they bought it in the room. Our first pitch was our, our first sale. We had a maquette of a clown with a puppet with a ray gun that I did. Charlie did a, a one-sheet poster. And we had a treatment. We pitched it, the guy said, he liked the title. He didn't know what the fuck we were gonna make. He not oh, know, I, I couldn't sell it. It was Moshe Month. Oh, the title, I, I could sell that. So they didn't know what we were gonna do. They gave us 2 million bucks. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know what? Knowing what to direct now, I would have been intimidated to make that film, but being naive, just filled with enthusiasm and desire to make a movie that I've always wanted to see, we just did it we shot six weeks up in santa cruz on location and we banged out that movie
1: it's got to feel good to sell a movie on name alone
0: it's funny and we said it's <laughs> easy we're gonna well, let's do this again and we never <laughs> after what like 35 years of trying to <laughs> sell feature films we get really really close but we've never you've never sold another movie you said
1: they gave you guys two million dollars and one of the claims to fame of that film is you were pretty much able to put all that into the production because you guys made all the special effects and stuff yourselves right
0: well interesting they were yelling at us to never talk about the budget back then i can now most of them because we shot on location most of the money went to transportation hotels per diem all the money just went because we we're shooting on locations so the least amount of money went to special effects i think we got 25 dollars to make all the clowns which is nothing but we had met, met some really great people in Los Angeles, people in the effects industry. Uh, Gene Rizzardi made all our props, a good friend of ours we met at Magic Lantern. Met Gene Warren Jr. and Leslie Huntley at Fantasy II Film Effects. And Gene and his team, they did all the optical effects. They did the miniatures and the opticals. So we got the biggest bang for the buck. I mean, Gene is an Academy Award winning effects guy. Joe Viscosal, who eventually won an Academy Award at Star Wars. Well, his explosions, he did the pyro <laughs> or killer clowns. Yeah.
1: All-star team.
0: All-star team. And they just did us favors. They worked for it really because they liked us. They liked the idea. Really great, great people. Some of the nicest people, the nicest people. Gene Warren Jr., Leslie, and Gene Third, and Chris, Chris Warren, all of them, they were all working with us on that. They helped us make it. And Mark Sullivan. Mark Sullivan was this incredible matte painter. He's an animator. He's a sculptor. He's a brilliant artist. He uh, ended up working at ILM and he did all matte paintings.
1: So I'm looking at your credit list here, Steven. It (laughs) says that that the return from the killer clowns from outer space is upcoming. What's that about? I used to
0: say, you could hold your breath, but now don't hold your breath. Oh, (laughs) Hollywood is a a mess. I don't know. It's it's hard hard to say. We started working on on a sequel right out of the gate. In fact, it was... A potential sale at usa cable for a television series that we had blocked out but the deal fell through it just didn't happen and ever since then we've been pitching pitching every year new production company comes up new people you know how it's musical chairs development people at these studios and we've been pitching all this time and it got really close and then these people leave and it just isn't it isn't happening and mgm owns them right now and i mean i'll say this the newest development is amazon just bought mgm Amazon has Amazon Prime they're interested in content to bring to their in fact it's just like the it's just like the 80s killer clowns was originally made for the the uh, video market the new demand for content for the video market Well hopefully if the deal goes through and Amazon Prime does eventually get to control the clown property they'll see that as a viable product that we could do a sequel with because they need content for that network so like i always say just keep on hoping i'd write to these people tell them that you want to see killer clowns let them know that there's an audience out there the larger the fan base the more activity they'll be we'll get you
1: know? jeff bezos on the podcast and hound him to death
0: he's going to space i don't know if he's gonna be, uh, <laughs> yeah, know. he's busy, yeah, he's busy. <laughs> but i think the watch who, out who, for those who, clowns who, up there who's ever still at mgm when <laughs> and if the deal goes through because you never can tell we'll see who uh, where 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 things lay where it ends up because we'll be there saying hey guys great ideas we've got i think i've said it before we have a trilogy in four parts (laughs) that that will uh that will carry the story (laughs) into the future (laughs) so many characters so many clown gags so much fun
1: so Steven, you're among huge Jim Varney fans here gotta ask you about Ernest scared stupid and what your experience was like just hanging out around and being around Jim Varney
0: well I'll tell you I, I you might want to interview my brother Charlie sometime oh. about that he was the one we were working on wow we were working on critters we were working on Critters three and four we were working on Ninja Turtles TV show up in Canada and I think landed a lot we were doing we were doing so much work in those days that we had to split our team up. Charlie went to Tennessee and supervised all the troll work with John Cherry, the writer, director, and Jim. And he said he had a blast. He said Jim Varney was the sweetest guy he'd ever met. He was there for the crew, entertaining people. He was just a great, great guy. And John Cherry, the director, a sweet guy, very creative, did his own little sketches that Charlie interpreted into the into the trolls. He he had a great time. He said it was a blast. I mean they built an entire nighttime exterior on stage. So all of that stuff was shot on stage. The tree actually, scene. Yeah, yeah, all of that. So he, he enjoyed it. He was there for I think eight weeks maybe down there working with oh, who is the actor who worked with the Gino? Yeah, I won't say the name of the actor, but the the guy who was in the suit. Very talented Yeah, yeah God, Yeah. Uh he's had a great time with them. Yeah.
1: That Trantor design is terrifying. That used to give me nightmares as a kid, and I used to try to keep a glass of milk by my nightstand just in case there was a troll so I could pour some milk on him.
0: Oh, really? Well, that does really funny. Well, it's, <laughs> it's interesting how these films affect you at the age you are introduced them to. I mean, now you look at it now and say, wow, how could I have been so affected? But, you know, at that early age, these are, these are powerful films, and they do make leave marks, hopefully good yeah. one. <laughs> Not skid marks. <laughs> so <laughs> what would... Was- <laughs>
1: Was the goal from the beginning to use the clowns from Killer Clowns in Ernest Scared know, or was that just born out of necessity?
0: Well, actually, that's a misconception people have that they think we reused the clowns and that's not really true. I think the ears might have been on one of the characters, might have mm. been the old we had. But no, actually, the similarities is because of Charlie's designs. Mark Cherry did some some designs, but it wasn't really conducive to adapting it to a man in a costume. So Charlie redesigned things. And I think it's just his illustration style that he brought to it that just inherently happens to be similar to the clowns. So that's the similarity. Yeah, they are similar, but they but they are in fact not the clown costumes. Just
1: debunk that myth out there for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's on the that's on the trivia on the official IMDb for that movie. So just <laughs> shit together, IMDb. So from from an animation perspective, what you say? What would you say is the most challenging project
0: you've worked on? Oh, well, I'll I'll expand animation to making any inanimate object come alive, which brings me to Team America. That was what
4: I was going to ask you about.
0: Oh, okay, Angela, here you go. (laughs) It was the biggest challenge in our careers. I mean, when Matt and Trey, they wanted to make a a Michael Bay movie, but they didn't want to use actors. They didn't like working with actors. They said, actors are too much problems. Let's do it with puppets. They thought it would be easier. Well, they learned their lesson. Puppets don't do shit. They don't do anything. You have to force them to do even the simplest thing. (laughs) and it was really hard it was a it was an army literally an army of puppeteers and technicians to get those puppets in place to do a shot and again we didn't originally get the job i think we might have bid on it but didn't get it another company got it and i think they produced they designed the mech of the puppets, the puppets themselves, but when they started shooting, it just didn't work out. They weren't giving Matt and Trey what they wanted as far as performance, so the, the, they shut production down. And then it came to us to kind of take over the production because besides a special effects company, we are producers and I think that producers, Edge gave us an insight into their production and we would facilitate the puppets to help them get this thing done. But the script, when we they first came to us, the climax, was on the Golden Gate Bridge with the Korean army and the American army on the bridge. And there was a school bus filled with children. And the whole thing falls down. And these are all married. And then we said, no, guys, we said, we can't do this. So we we turned it down. We said, no, it was really intimidating. They spent, I think, half the money. I didn't know how much money was left. So they came back to us again. And we still said, no, it was was like almost an impossible job. And then the third offer was one of the executives. I think it was uh, Ralph Bakshi's son what was his name he said look guys he said we want to make this movie he says i can't promise that we're going to give you work you didn't want to make the false promise oh you'll get all this work he said but i will i'll promise that you will be known for this film you'll be there you'll be in the credits they'll know you made this film and i just said to him two things i don't want my company to go bankrupt doing this and i don't want people to yell at <laughs> i'm specific because we're not going to be the hero there's no magic solution going in there and saving the day and being god and oh everything's going to work i said it's going to be really really difficult so he did keep his promise we were you know we had our name on the on the on the poster and we were part of the the junket for promotion so we did get our name out there but the ad did yell at me and i didn't appreciate that Because I'll tell you what it was. The puppets took forever. There was nothing else to shoot but puppets. And we'd go in there and we'd have to set up the puppets. We'd have to do with the strings. We'd have to go through the, the wardrobe to get things done. And it took forever. So it ended up, we would do five units at the same time. We had to break up and do five different units shooting puppets. And we did it on two separate stages. We were in a warehouse in Culver City. And we were on the Fox studio lot. And we had another big stage there where we did, I mean, the miniature for... Paris was 70 feet by 100 feet that was the miniature it was tremendous and we had a 21 foot long gang tree like a trailway that was elevated over the set for the puppeteers to. so just getting the puppets in place in the morning we'd be set up for strings at at let's say 10 feet for a certain shot size and Matt and Trey would come in and say well you know we're changing our mind we want to do something else it was a wide shot so we had to then string the puppets for 15 feet it took like an hour to do each puppet because you had to take the strings out you had to restring the puppets you had to go through the wardrobe and have to make sure that it didn't move when you pull the strings then you had to get the puppeteers up there then you had to get the monitors up there with the sound it took forever and the live action people were not used to this kind of schedule they were used to doing like maybe i don't know 20, 30 setups a day and we were doing like maybe two or three or four. So we had multiple units with multiple puppeteers. We had 80 puppeteers one day, the rent scene and the big climax in, in the, uh, arena, it's Kim Jong-un's arena, or Kim Jong-il's arena.
1: Do you think it could have potentially been easier on you guys if you would have been involved from ground zero? On that project and kind of help design the puppets and start at the bottom
0: oh no no i'll, I'll be clear about this norman tempia and dave nelson designed the puppets they were top-notch mm. they were great we use we use their designs and we just manufactured them we started a machine and started getting those things built and made and so we really brought up more of a production angle to it that i think better suited and it was also a whole performance angle i think the puppeteers that they hired originally were a bunch of really professional really excellent puppeteers who wanted to give this more lifelike performance wanted to imbue these characters with this living performance matt and trey did not want that and it was kind of like dials matt and trey and this was a comedy Mm -hmm. and i learned very early like for example there was one scene where the puppet was walking was a spotswood walking up to his limousine and he's walking nice and beautifully And it was fine, there was a shot of Spots was walking. Then we did another take and Spots was walking, he hit the side of the car and the puppet kind of bounced around through inertia and the momentum kind of flopped around and looked kind of silly and stupid. Well, that's the take the guys used because (laughs) that was funny. The other shot was funny. So you weren't mining any comedy by having these things move realistically, the way they fought, they didn't want them. Originally we designed these cross type strings to make them punch and kick and fight more realistically. They didn't use any of that. They wanted to fight like a bunch of silly little puppets that couldn't do anything. That was funny. So, again, you serve the director. You don't go in there with the preconceived notion. This is what Matt and Trey wanted, and they were 100% right. That film, to me, is still one of the funniest films I've worked on. I watch it now. It makes me laugh. It's a hoot because they were inept heroes, and they were fucking puppets. That was the gag. So I think that's what we brought. We, we gave them what they wanted. Uh, even the uh, the sex scene. We, were, we had them doing kind of like realistic sex and, and Trey would say, no, no, no. And they showed us this animatic they made with a Barbie doll and G.I. Joe. And it was just these dolls, the way a kid would play with them. They <laughs> were just rutting, just going uh, uh, like this. And that's what we ended up doing. In fact, like, Trey was, was puppeteering them too. He got his hand in there. <laughs> and that's why that scene is so funny. Those guys, I'm telling you, they throw the word genius around quite a bit. Yeah, I don't use the word genius a lot, it's overused. But these are the hardest working guys. They were there every day with us, busting their balls. In the daytime, then at night, they go work on South Park. Trey was there doing all the voices, having, let's say, as many as four or five little remote controls doing the mouths for all the characters because he knew the dialogue. <laughs> because the Gilderfluke didn't work, which was a mechanical machine that was going to make them talk according to the tracks. It did work, but Trey rewrote everything the day before, so there was no pre-recorded tracks. It was the most difficult job. I believe so fantastic. you. Fantastic. <laughs> when it comes to the, the
4: type of, puppy, you've got the marionette versus the critter style where you've got your hand in there or where you've got the machines running things. Which is your favorite kind to work with? I mean, the, the marionettes in Team America, there was so much emotion. And then just the way that they moved, like you were saying, with the, the comedic style of not being perfect. You know, what's your favorite type to work
0: with? Well, they all have their pluses and minuses. I mean, it takes a great puppeteer. Oh boy, my, my brain! I I don't want to. I want to mention their names. It was uh, puppeteers brought that loves that that on top of Mount Rushmore between Gary and Lisa, the two puppeteers did brilliant work, the subtlety of the performance, the way Lisa would touch him and do that. So the guys, Matt and Trey knew when to really make them perform and when make them do comedic bits. I'm embarrassed that I don't remember their names. It must be the COVID uh, isolation that has kind of fried my brain. I'll remember before this is over, okay? But those performances were great. It's great when you get a great performance. You can do it that simple as a hand. To me, it's simplicity. The simpler the puppet, the better it's gonna be for the performance, because the mechanics always break, the strings always snap, there's always always trouble. I, I directed an episode of The Simpsons. It was a, a holiday special with Katy Perry. It was a Christmas thing and they were just Muppety type puppets. And it was a pleasure just to have them do their Muppety type stuff. There were great interpretations of the Simpsons family as Muppets swazzle was a company that built them for me and the johnson brothers and and a bunch of these guys were puppeteering great puppeteers that to me is the most fun because it is the simplest the most elegant way to get a puppet to do things as soon as you start adding animatronics you got a second level of puppeteers who are all brilliant but it's coordinating the performance so that it that it works and it's not that the performers can't do it it's the production time it is this machine is that has to happen really fast and what happens is it takes us so long to set everything up we're usually the last shot of the day so everybody wants to go home you set your puppet up you do your first take where you just kind of work out let's say like a rehearsal you're working out the gag you're seeing what to do and they always say oh that's great we got it and we say no no let's let's do another take please we we, we've, we've refined it, we can do better. Oh no, 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 we got to trust me. Because of the nature of production, we're never really given the opportunity to really hone the performance and get it done right. We did in Team America because it was nothing else to shoot but puppets. But a film like Critters, where first unit, we might do one or two shots with the principal photography, but most of it is second unit. And they've got a shitload of stuff to shoot and they always put puppets last. End of the day, everybody wants to go home. Hurry up, let's get going clock's running, we gotta go, 12-hour turnaround. (laughs) And I have a feeling they rush us, and I I feel like that kind of hinders the performance. So like I said, each technique has its own pluses and minuses, which makes me feel the simpler puppet that you could just get up there and just do some performances, great. And as big a fan as I am of stop motion, stop motion, you'll be lucky to get 10 seconds a day, where puppets, live puppets, you can get 10 minutes a day. So (laughs) as far as productivity, (laughs) yeah.
1: I'm staring at one of your credits here, Steven. And I, I don't remember any puppets being involved in it. So you're gonna have to help me out Good Burger. What did you do in Good Burger?
0: Oh, in Good Burger. Oh yeah, there was a, a dream or an halluci- uh, hallucination in the film, in the very beginning. And we made a burger and it was uh. a burger with eyeballs that talks.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember yeah, we, it now.
0: <laughs> see, see the one moment, I just remembered. Scotland and uh and, uh, oh, I just had his name. Scotland, these are our key puppeteers. Scotland <laughs> did a lot of Gary. And Tony Urbano did Lisa and a lot of other characters. Uh, Scotland also did Kim Jong-il and Greg Ballora. Those were our three lead puppeteers. I just wanted to mention them because it's their performance. It's amazing how the performance comes out of their fingers, down the strings and into the puppets and really, mm-hmm. really do wonderful things. Tony Urbano was a master, um, a master. They, they all are, uh, Scott and Greg. So I just just remember them. That fog went away. Yeah, no,
4: I was just saying that I love food puppets. Those are some of my favorite things ever.
0: <laughs> oh, they're so funny. You put eyeballs on a piece of food and it's, it's a hoot. I have to
2: say, so I, I know I was looking through your credits and you actually made a commercial for possibly one of the best eighties sci fi action films of all time, Robocop. Oh. Can you talk a little bit about the uh Suck Six Thousand, I think it was?
0: Yeah, the S U X five thousand or something. I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you, we've been really fortunate, as, I don't know, affects people, to, to, to have some really key, key moments. That was a really great one. John Davidson, the producer, contacted us for the Paul Verhoeven film, and they were doing these, these commercials. And it was an animated dinosaur, and how do we know them? You know, I forget what the connection was. I don't know what it was, but they contacted us. I think it might have been through Dream dream quest we had a meeting with uh, paul verhoeven and we had uh, an idea of doing a sexy female dinosaur you know that was like a car commercial and he goes no 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 i want to do a 50s monster movie you know and we said that's even better like piece some Twenty Thousand fathoms so we made a dinosaur i sculpted that uh, don waller did the animation for that it wasn't a lot of money but we went uh we went downtown and shot background plates illegally we put our mitchell in the back of a uh, Uh, I guess it was a Mercedes because it had great shocks and we did the moving background plates of the dinosaur walking with the background moving and we set up sticks on a corner on a Sunday very early in the morning downtown LA to get the shots for the background. It was a gun and run independent type thing we did. It turned out great. We were so happy to be part of that film. Robocop is one of my favorite films. It's a classic modern frankenstein movie oh i love it so it's great to be a part of it
1: so to date Stephen, what would you say is the best advice you
0: received for navigating the film industry work gets work good work gets work you know you just keep on a lot of times people would say oh no there's not enough money you know not do something you look at the project look at the people you're working with and that's what you're investing your time into i mean tim burton and rick heinrichs at that point i didn't know who they were but when i saw when I saw the project, I just thought it was pretty great. I, I liked them. I, I thought it was really great. And then that led to Large Marge, which was another big key moment for us. That's what? Favor Murray. <laughs> yeah, Large. Large. I had no Large. idea you
1: did Large Marge. You oh, just really? blew my... oh,
0: need to do more research. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm firing myself. Yeah, that was it. I, 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 I animated Large Marge. That was a really good hoot for me. It was like one of the more memorable moments in that film. So by doing work with people, you get to know people and that networks to other people that are good. And you meet this oasis of good people that you want to work with again and again. And people see your work. We never had an agent out there hawking our, our skills. We didn't need to. We were very fortunate. We didn't do everything. I mean, if somebody wanted something dead, drop dead realistic, there were other companies that were doing that. I mean, Stan Winston was famous for doing really great gorillas and Rick Baker, you know, a brilliant, brilliant artists. We did something different. People came to us because we had a character style with our stuff and people would always come to us. We always had work. We never really had to actually go out and solicit work. People would always call us. So work gets work, being good, being honest, being reliable, thats it's a business.
1: Well said. You
0: do art, but it's a business.
1: Man, between Trantor and Large Marge, you and your brother really did a number on me. Yeah, Large Marge, that was a great scene. The how, whole how, was, how,
0: yeah. how long
4: did it take? Because, I mean, the, that scene is less than five seconds of her just... <laughs> oh, yeah. Well,
0: how long that, did it take? It, it took 12 hours to animate what is essentially about a second. Yeah, it's about... 12 frames of animation It took all re-sculpting. I just re-sculpted everything, everything. And then we had replacement eyes. Those eyes are made of plaster and they were replaced, getting bigger, 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 and bigger. There was a lot of fun. I mean, I remember when when Rick Heinrichs was working with Tim during Pee-wee's big adventure. And there were these two shots that he was contracted to do. The the Tyrannosaurus stop motion with the bicycle and the large Marge. And I said, oh, I want to do the the, the, the dinosaur because I like dinosaurs. And he goes, Oh, no, I'm going to do that shot. So I had I got stuck with Large Marge because I didn't know how we were going to do it. I couldn't figure it out, but we did. And I'm kind of glad we got stuck with that shot. I mean, it was a head casting of the actress. We made a mold and we made a clay press of her. And then we, uh, uh, we got her wig, we got her wardrobe and uh, we actually put the makeup, the actual makeup that the makeup artist used on the actress, we put that on the uh, clay to give it the same kind of patina and reflectance. So it would look a little more realistic because the clay looked pretty shitty yeah it was it was a, a lot of fun
1: that's very cool that's easily the most memorable moment in that movie too even if it's a second
0: it was a good scene it was really played mm-hmm. out
1: directly <laughs> another funny movie yeah so Stephen, have you seen any good horror movies during the lockdown
0: oh I revisited some it follows to me is really great Dale and. Dale and somebody save the world or something. Uh, What's that? that, uh, that. Ah, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: Tucker and Tucker Dale. Yeah. Tucker and
0: Dale. I love that film. I like the comedy. I mean, I'm not into the horror porn. You know, the, the yeah, you know, Saw and things like that. To me, it's so realistic. It's not. It's it, It's not enjoyable. Mm-hmm. You know, I like films that have. Uh, the, uh, what was it? The um, that zombie movie, Train to Busan. Is that? Yeah, it?
1: that's really really good. Sequel just oh. came out for it.
0: Yeah, that that was great, and and it's not just a zombie movie. There was a, a character story there, that was really compelling. The characters he created, it just it just elevates the genre to what I think is a legit a legit film that goes above the genre itself. I I really like that film.
1: That is a great movie.
0: But what else is out there? My my brain is in a fog. I can't remember what I saw last week.
1: One I like to recommend is The Wretched.
4: Which one is
0: that? The yeah. Wretched. If you haven't seen Willie's
4: Oh, The Wretched. Okay. And Willie's? Mm. Yeah. Willie's Yeah. That one's fun.
0: I heard the void is pretty good.
1: That is good. The void is good.
0: Yes. Oh, I- I'll Love yeah, I'll 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 take a look. I've got some time. I'll what <laughs> it? And what was the one, Justin, you said? The Wretched. The Wretched.
1: They released that movie at the very beginning of the pandemic and it just took off. It became the number one movie in America at the time. And it's just some indie horror movie, but it debuted at drive-ins just as, you know, the shit was hitting the fans. So everybody was looking for something to do. And they went and saw a horror movie at the drive-in.
0: Hey, well, no, you send me a link. Send, send me an email with these titles on it because I have nothing to write down with.
1: So. I will definitely do that. We're not going to keep you all evening here, Stephen, but Angelique definitely has a question she wants to ask you. So I'm going to shut up,
4: <laughs> <laughs> This is something I, I like to ask everybody. What's your go-to movie snack? What's that one thing that you just have to munch on that makes your movie watching experience just absolutely
0: perfect? Oh. Well, it's really a combo. It's popcorn and raisinettes. If you haven't tried it, I highly recommend nice. it. Nice. Now, do you pour the no, no, end of the popcorn or, or just cancel? I've, I've seen people do that. I guess mixing the two together in your mouth to me doesn't really give you the contrast. So I'll have popcorn, popcorn, then I'll pop a couple of raisinettes. So it's Mm. yin and yang. I have seen people throw M&Ms and stuff in popcorn and eat them together. And it doesn't, it's not the same sensation. Do a test. You try it and you tell me. What's your (laughs) favorite? What's your go-to?
4: Absolutely. uh, At home, pizza. I love just to throw a tombstone in and slice it up and just, you know, have a good pizza while I'm watching a movie.
0: And in the theater?
4: Oh, well, popcorn and either Junior
0: Mints or Twizzlers. Oh, really? Okay. Junior Mints. How about you, Justin? Come on. what's it Well,
1: I, it's not a popular opinion, but I really don't like popcorn. So I usually go for some sort of chocolate and then, mm. you know, maybe some M&Ms, something like that, you know, yeah. or Milk Duds. I really do like Milk Duds.
0: Oh, OK. I get that.
1: Oh, very good. Well, Stephen, we're not going to keep you all evening, but what else do you have on the horizon? Anything coming up that you want to tell folks about before we wrap up?
0: mm let's see not, not much i could talk about oh i just want to say uh, for people who might not have known we did a holiday special for netflix called alien christmas stop motion special very much in the in, in the vein of the rankin and bass rudolph specials so it's still on netflix you can see it anytime you want oh. uh, it has like a little snarky Kyoto brothers edge there that you might find refreshing and we're working on stuff stuff i can't really talk about <laughs> they always get me not to talk about these things if I had a website worth its salt, I'd, I'd, I'd have the fans go there. But no, you can catch probably the most updated stuff on any one of the brothers' Facebook. There is a Kyoto Brothers website. I don't do anything with it. I, we're really bad at that. So, <laughs> <laughs> we need a media person. But uh, no, that's it. We're still around, and we're still trying to hawk a killer clowns. Keep your fingers crossed, all your fingers crossed. Who knows what's going to happen in the future? Uh if this sale uh, goes through, maybe something will happen. But just keep keep voicing your opinions about a clown sequel. Just don't get angry at us. We have nothing to do with it. We've trying <laughs> 35 plus years. <laughs> Believe me. But that's it. I want to thank you guys. You guys have been really delightful. Good questions. I enjoyed talking to you.
1: Thank you, Stephen. It's been our pleasure. We will be in touch. Definitely want to talk to Charles at some point. So you'll just have to bug him for us.
0: Yeah, do that.
1: Alrighty. Have okay. Have a great take night. Take
0: care.